0: Well, welcome everyone. We're excited to have Ozzy Goen with us today. Ozzie I'm Excited the, to be here. Yeah. Excited to have you.
1: Thanks so much for coming.
0: Let me briefly introduce you for our guests who are unfamiliar, or for our listeners who are unfamiliar. Ozzy is the president of the Quantified Uncertainty Research Institute, a research orgy- organization dedicated to advancing forecasting and epistemics to improve the future of humanity. He's previously worked at the Future of Humanity Institute, appropriately enough. And might be most well known for creating Guesstimate, a wonderful spreadsheet like tool for handling distributions and uncertainty that is still w- one of my favorite apps in the tool for thought space. I-, I still use it a lot. So, Ozzy, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. So we have a lot of different topics that we were interested in covering with you today. One that I just wanted to start off with was I think of you as a Real, true utilitarian, a believer in the ethos and philosophy. Do you? Would you agree with that kind of categorization?
2: Yeah, I'd say in many ways, I. Yeah, I I believe a lot of the tenets of utilitarianism. Typically, quite a bit more so than other people. That said, that doesn't mean I take extreme actions in the way that people may expect for a pseudo-utilitarian. Right. I think I am much more normal than. You may be thinking.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a great caveat. Uh, What was your intellectual journey towards utilitarianism? How long would you say that you've held this ethos?
2: When I got to college, I had a conversation with someone about some moral topics, and they said, you sound a lot like a utilitarian. (laughs) So I just researched the phrase, and I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Um, So I think during high school, I just had kind of similar beliefs. Before that, I liked maximizing things. It seemed like I wanted to try to do more good than less good. And then later, I discovered effective altruism when I was in college. And then I've been into that area since.
1: So since you said, and I certainly believe you that, you know, people stereotype of utilitarian, like you're more normal than that. I'm curious when somebody said you're utilitarian and you looked it up, if you encountered a lot of the things that mm. are, other people might think of as like, gotcha, like that's why utilitarianism doesn't make sense. And how you, how you thought about that at the time?
2: At the time, I mean, this was probably 2008 or something. So there wasn't that much of a known community okay. of utilitarians. People kind of talk about it in the abstract. So, yeah, I mean, I think there are just some arguments that people assume are ridiculous that utilitarians right. have to take. But there wasn't much of a notion of what specific utilitarians would be like. That like, said, of course.
1: Yeah. Like, I, I was assigned to write some essay about utilitarianism where we yeah. had to talk about, like, okay, but then why don't you take the guy's organs? Or do you take the guy's organs and, you know, use the mystery yeah. of all the other people? Like, I don't know, did these things bother you? or were you just like, well, no, a utilitarian wouldn't do that anyway? Or...
2: I think at that point, some of the utilitarian blogs kind of existed. So when I started looking into it, they gave answers that I thought were reasonable. I didn't take philosophy classes in college. I studied engineering, and most of my mm-hmm. colleagues were much from a scientific paradigm. So they didn't, definitely didn't introduce that many questions like that. Yeah.
0: Got it. Were your colleagues who were also in the engineering and STEM discipline, would you have described many of them as having utilitarian beliefs?
2: We had a small squad in our college. So we
0: made something called, uh, sorry,
2: Future Tech, or more specifically AI and Future Tech, so you could be in the top of the alphabetic ranking.
0: <laughs> um, so
2: that was kind of like an EA club in 2008 to 2010 or 11 at Harvey Mudd College. We had a few people who were pretty utilitarian leaning. That said, I think the rest haven't quite gone on to AI safety or the obvious utilitarian things. I think they've taken more regular lives, which, yeah, is good for them. But there there were a few of us with that aside. Most of the college didn't seem incredibly, you know, they were more engineering majors and things like that. They were practically minded. I think most people just haven't thought about morality Maybe people did in the 1900s. I'm curious how many even like college students, I mean, um, philosophy students are that deep into it these days in undergrad. My impression is that a lot of people just haven't thought about this stuff too much. Seems right.
0: I feel like utilitarianism in particular for philosophical stances tends to get more of these paradoxes thrown at it, in part because it is more of like a coherent is the wrong word, but in some ways it is like, it's more, it's more specific. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's more specified. And so one on the like organ donation paradox, like do you kill the person to save the (laughs) five lives from the organs? What is kind of your stance? And also how do you relate to the general question of like biting some of these bullets when it comes to utilitarianism?
2: Yeah. So there's a whole lot here. I think I've been kind of treating it as like utilitarianism isn't probably a great starter morality. Right. Like, if I'm going to take someone who's not going to think about it that much and are just like going to go off and start doing crazy, you know, big actions in the world, I probably won't give them utilitarianism. Um, Why not? Well, because, you know, it says that it's not like absolutely the end of the world if you lie or like deceive other people. Like you have to think through why you shouldn't in practice. Right. But there are a lot of people who it may be very advantageous for you to say, if you lie or cheat or steal, you'll go to hell for eternity. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Like, sure,
2: that's like a great incentive to if, if you're scared about what this person is going to do, that's just like a better thing to tell them in order to get them to never, ever do those things or like to try right. not to, as opposed to a value system where you say, like, look, you're trying to maximize this broad agenda. And there are a lot of trade offs when doing that, in which case they could make a lot of really stupid moves with those things. Right. So it probably takes I, I, I think it's a broader class of like intellectual power tools. That there are these like a bunch of different techniques that require sophistication in order to use. Mm -hmm. But if you are reasonable, if you can use them well, then there's like a pretty high ceiling of what you could get to.
0: Gotcha. So something like oh
2: yeah, Yeah. I mean, examples of power tools would be things like data-driven decision making. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you use the wrong data, then you're going to just do really stupid things. Systematized evaluations, so just like rankings of how good things are. There are just like a lot of ways to mess that up if you don't know what you're doing. Um, First principles thinking. Like, almost anything that's not just, like, kind of do the default thing that people do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, you're going, there's going to be ways to mess it up. It's incredibly hard to give people who may be very naive a small set of rules of, like, here's a cool thing that you could do that could get you pretty far, and, like, have that be very resistant to them potentially messing it up if they want to, right? Or, like, if if they're just not going to be that careful and knowledgeable about it. I think similarly, like, when it, when it comes to, like, building physical things in the world, if you want an electrician to work with your house, you know, it's understood that like power and electricity are like powerful things to have, but you probably need a license in order to be able to do things with them. Otherwise, you'll just kind of shoot yourself in the foot and burn your house down. Similarly, I think things like like utilitarianism or data-driven decision-making or a lot of things like that, there are a lot of ways to mess them up if you're not kind of careful. Unfortunately, you don't really have any great license. Like you don't have a utilitarian license of so, like, oh, you know, you've like gone through this agenda. Like we're pretty sure that you could handle handled being able to do things like handle how estimates actually work. You're not like, dramatically overconfident and therefore you actually have the abilities. There was something called, sorry, I'm blanking the name of it. Like I think government house utilitarianism, which is the idea that government officials should be utilitarian, but they don't tell other people about utilitarianism because hmm. they'll probably mess it up. Similarly, like one major reason for religion being promoted is because it gets people to be more moral in a lot of cases. Like, it may be wrong, but at least if people believe that they'll go to hell for eternity if they mess up, then that is like a motivational factor. So in that sense, I think that there is like an existing understanding that some of these things can definitely be messed up by a lot of people if they aren't like very nuanced about it. But that doesn't mean that like, they're not true, right? There's a very different question of like, do we actually think that this is a kind of correct thing? And like, how high is the ceiling? And... Like, is it possible that people with some sophistication can do a pretty good job when using these? And I think the answer to that is positive.
0: I love this thread and what it brings up. In particular, I'm curious, all right, if you think utilitarianism is a philosophy that has a very high ceiling, like you can do a lot of potential good with it, but it also has fewer constraints, you can shoot your foot off with it as well, metaphorically do you have a preferred philosophy for the starters? Like what's the starter pack philosophy you'd recommend to someone?
2: I think generally, I mean, this is a very complicated question. I, I think some of this, you could imagine how far people would want to go on it. Like hypothetically, if we were just optimizing for what would make the best world, potentially you could imagine one extreme where we don't care about epistemics and we're willing to craft religion X, which is a religion that if people believed would have the best outcomes, right? So we just like... Engineered heaven and definitions of heaven and hell in order to get people to act exactly how we would properly want. I would be pretty hesitant to, you know, be to, to to do that. So, I think my intuition is to be honest with people and not play this like two-sided thing and say that like generally we, like I believe that utilitarianism is the best approximation that we have now. Mm-hmm. However, you should be pretty uncertain before you do anything like dramatic in the world. And generally, if you aren't super sophisticated, like don't pretend you are, just play it much safer, right? And playing it safe means like just generally doing the things that society generally deems is like pretty good to do. There's also a question of which, who you think your like, quote, quote, epistemic superiors are in different Mm -hmm. domains. Like just stay very humble and try to figure out people who you're pretty sure know more than you in specific areas and then defer to them. In those areas. And hopefully those are pretty reasonable people, not crazy people.
0: What are the heuristics that they should employ for like understanding whether or not they are sophisticated enough to use utilitarianism, so to speak? That's a good question. I
2: mean, I think whether you use utilitarianism or not, it's generally a good idea to be a calibrated intellectual. And there are definitely a whole lot of intellectuals that aren't calibrated, that are dramatically overconfident. So getting a good intuition for who the overconfident people are and why they're overconfident is a pretty easy like, thing to recommend. For that, I do recommend the forecasting literature as a starting point so you have a good impression of just how overconfident a lot of our leading intellectuals are. My impression <laughs> is that the like situation is pretty poor. Like, I hope that like 100 years from now when people look back on this stage, they'll be incredibly disappointed by just how much of a shit show we have for leading intellectuals. I think across the board, we have a lot of people who really don't represent great epistemic principles and norms. Right, but there are there, there are few people, of course, who do a bit better. Scott Alexander in our community, I think, is more calibrated than a lot of leading figures.
0: This also that's really helpful for seeing how your work at Query and your work on tools for thought in the forecasting and estimation space all fits together with your worldview and utilitarian philosophy, something like, and correct me, by the way, if I'm wrong on this, but I want to make some kind of story where it's like, okay, utilitarianism is useful, provided that you are a well calibrated, good thinker. In order to do that, you should ensure that you are calibrated and using tools and and computer aided support for calibration and thinking. Is that the story?
2: Yeah, I think there are a lot of things like that. I'll also flag that from the forecasting literature, we have an idea of what tools we could put in place to make sure that people actually make good judgments. Mm-hmm. A lot of those tools are things like you want to aggregate opinions between people who have a track record of good quality. You also want to put things into incentive systems where people are incentivized to be accurate, not to be enjoyable. So those are things that hypothetically we should really be trying as hard as possible to use for all of our key decision making, including about like utilitarianism. Most people won't do that, like a lot of people really do prefer having their own take on things and then doing gigantic actions in the world based on their own take, as opposed to trying to listen to panels of like things that are well-run. For example, in the FTX case, what he was doing is like very, very far from what I think any forecasting community would have been okay with. Right. Maybe I should flag here that when it comes to questions like, should you be honest with people? I, I think that there are a lot of different ways of looking at this. One is that often, you have local games to play. And in those local games, you could have dis- different decision functions than are in the global game. Mm-hmm. So there are reasons why you may be trying to maximize EV, expected value, in you know, the big game. But there may be short games that if your decision function is different, if you hard code your decision function to instead be like, I'm always going to tell the truth and I'm always going to do a few other things, that decision function has higher expecta- like expected value than the decision function that says, I'm going to maximize expected value for everything. This is very similar to the Newcombs problem, where basically that's a situation where you kind of want to use a different... like. It's it's pretty easy to engineer different thought experiments so that different decision functions do better, right? You could get pretty wacky with this, but yeah.
1: Would you say this is sort of like what people mean when they talk about act versus rule utilitarianism?
2: It depends a bit on the specifics. Some people would say that those are ends, and then some people would say that they're means. I'd say that like the way that I'm describing it is that Rule utilitarianism makes very good means, but not very good ends. So, like, it, it makes a lot of sense, like, practically speaking, that I, like, the people around me trust me. Like, that's like a super useful thing in the world for me to eventually obtain my ends. So, I'm going to do this as a pragmatic step in doing that, right? And very similarly, like, I think contracts are amazing so it would be kind of absurd to imagine a bunch of utilitarian utilitarians who will lie cheat and steal for their purpose but all have like slightly different purposes trying to coordinate with each other and having a terrible time because they just like can't you know they they can't be honest with each other that i think is a naive understanding of how utilitarians work right like utilitarians just can't do good things for each other without maximizing this bigger variable every decision that they make is just going to be thought of as like a narrow thing, so they're happy to cheat to get like a buck, even though in the long term it'll hurt them. Practically speaking, I think that if you put a bunch of utilitarians together and they were kind of reasonable, they would coordinate a whole lot between each other to have a whole lot of agreements and hopefully like hard-coded things that would be in, in a way like a contrast to a utility function, right? It's like saying that like, I'm going to force myself in the future to obey this other decision function that like, I cannot do these things anymore. But the result of that is I get, we get these benefits, and now collectively we could coordinate much better.
0: This
1: okay. is like local deontology for instrumental reasons.
2: Exactly. Yeah. But that seems great. Like, I think that we could go very far in this dimension. I think contracts are awesome. Hypothetically, like one thing that we could do that I'd be excited about, although obviously would be controversial, would be things like, if I had an AI bot in the future that tracks everything that I do, it could tell you if I'm lying. So hypothetically, I can make a financial agreement that says, if I lie at any point, you know, I'll I'll lose all my money. All my money will go to a charity I don't like, right? And then I can have my AI bot tracking me the whole time, right? This is a case of like, if I did this, in many ways, it's like very stupid. um, This could only hurt me. At the same time, it would allow other people to trust me much better, right? So the future I would like to see is one where we have a lot more things like this. Of course, there are a lot of ways that that could go wrong. This is like a big power tool. So this is like dangerous stuff, but yeah.
0: Right. Making certain pre-commitments so that people can evaluate you as more trusted or more credible in various ways. This definitely, I see some ties here with your broader work on like estimation and evaluation, something like trying to create engineering systems to reduce the uncertainty about the potential actions that a person or institution could take?
2: Yeah, I think, so a bigger agenda is, yeah, I, I call it advanced evaluation systems. The broad question is like, can we, we want to be able to estimate things at scale for very cheaply. Like we want some general purpose patterns to estimate general purpose things at scale, like just very cheaply, and then we want to apply, we want to figure out how much we could apply those patterns to solve a lot of other world problems. My impression is that a lot of global coordination um, and a lot of like key problems that we have kind of resolve to coordination problems, and that can be reduced to estimation problems. So if you can can
0: say more about that, if you would. Yeah,
1: can you maybe give an example of one?
2: No, of course. If we always had very precise estimates of the value of everything, I think that there's a whole lot we could do with that. So for example, when politicians are trying to promote a specific bill, the bill may be 800 pages. Typically, a lot of the bill is like negative expected value for the populace, right? If you knew the expected value of every single sentence of that bill, you could just kind of optimize it until it's like pretty good. Right now, we have a lot of frustration because people don't trust each other that much. So we don't have a good, like, one reason why people don't trust each other is because we don't have good estimates in a lot of cases. Like people provide estimates that are very misleading or wrong. So, yeah.
1: so you're, you have a prediction that a lot of these bills with a bunch of things that are, I think, anyone who was sort of trying to do a reasonable analysis would conclude are not super socially valuable for the money. You think that those bills would be a lot less likely to be passed if people could like put the 800-page bill into some thing that parsed it and said this is this would be the social value of this?
2: I think basically like, the more transparency could go on in terms of the benefit of these things... Like that that generally corresponds to better decisions being made. So right now, there's a little bit of transparency, so which allows like my impression is that the transparency that we have now means that politicians are able to make some actions that are kind of better, and we're able to see which politicians did which bills. And that gives us some information, but we really don't have as much information as we could. Like these bills are like so big, it's very hard to understand them. And then for like, people don't trust each other. So if one think tank comes along saying this bill is very valuable, other people won't even trust what that think tank says. I see. So
1: some of it is having whatever people are using to evaluate the value of the bill be something that was objective enough, checkable enough that yeah. people who disagreed with each other about a lot of things would both put a lot of stock in that estimate. Yep.
2: So basically, like right now, it takes a lot of evaluation work for people to have good understandings of how, like how good and bad things are. And with the evaluation work that we currently put into it, they have a pretty mediocre understanding. Mm-hmm. I think that, like, if we're able to do a much better job, then people would have a much better understanding, and then correspondingly, people would make better decisions.
0: There's a way in which this comes across as like a real instantiation of a mistake theory view on where people are going wrong, and this is a reference to kind of the yep. frames of mistake theory and conflict theory, and just saying this also for benefit of people who might not be familiar with it, like mistake theory being something like, okay, well, we would have these better bills if people had much better estimates, if people had more knowledge and understanding of all the implications of it. And then maybe the opposite lens is something like conflict theory, like, well, this cause people, we have bad bills or something because they're competing groups, lobbying groups, there's competing interests. And at the end of the day, it doesn't like it's one group winning out over another. Do you think that in a conflict theory view, estimation theories, systems would still help? And or is that like some kind of explanation for why they're not adopted now or why there doesn't seem to be more like push towards these kind of trusted systems?
2: So in an extreme view of conflict theory, the U.S. as a whole or the world as a whole is about maximize, like it's doing a decent job maximizing its ability to coordinate. I I don't see that as a viable thing. Like, to me, it seems like people are doing such a terrible job at coordination globally. There's just like so many things that seem like they could be great if people chipped in enough money to fund them, mm. if they understood well enough. Mm. I think people don't understand how big of a deal X risks are, but like it is in their best interest to do so. Generally, I think, yeah, I, I don't feel like we're coordinating. Even among groups like the Democrats and Republicans, like if they coordinated better, they are probably much better optimal alternatives. Right. So- it w- I think it would take a very cynical view to say that we're coordinating at optimal amounts in the world, and no amount of more sophistication could n- help us basically, my view is that like we have a very long road to go like we- the ceiling to being able to coordinate better is like way higher than it is now coordinate mm. coordinated nation among eight billion people is like very tough we're very far away from doing that with the intelligence that we have and it's like incredibly costly right now to send information to different people to like for different people to learn about each other to trust each other all these things are like in very very difficult so we should kind of expect that people will have a lot of trouble coordinating on a big scale but if we could then we'd grow a lot another example of this is like in government a lot of the challenge of government is a complexity of you know legal terms right so like bills are very big it's like very complicated to deal with all of that If you could reduce a lot of that complication, like my guess is that that, that's not like, I I think this is like more a mistake theory Mm -hmm. that we just want to do better in these areas than conflict theory of like, oh, it's actually a good thing, kind of. Or it's like Pareto optimal for our bills to be like this monolithic and like annoying to deal with. I I think we could just do quite a bit better. And... Right.
0: Civilizational inadequacy when it comes to cooperation and coordination.
2: Yeah. Like if you think, if you imagine replacing... The eight billion people that we have with people who are a thousand iq or like agis that were incredibly intelligent do you really think that the world would be so messy like are you like yes they're optimizing but this is actually the optimal world i think mm. that, that that's an intense position
1: yeah so it's sort of like you you're part of how you think about mistake theory versus conflict theory is you're running some sanity check that's like does it seem like there's a lot of value being left on the table and yours comes up like, yes, obviously, it's not subtle. And so while you're not necessarily saying that there isn't any conflict theory component, you're like, but the mistake theory component is massive. Yep.
2: I think a lot of people would agree with that too. Like conflict theory is definitely a thing. There are many cases where there are zero sum games, but there are also many cases where there are potential positive sum games.
0: I want to jump around a little bit and I expect we'll be coming back to this topic as well. But since we're kind of talking about governance and some of the ways that like, a mistake theory view informs that and the potential for improvements there. I know that you've recently joined up with another effective altruist member, Julia Wise, in thinking through potential improvements or reforms to the EA landscape. And this seems like a really interesting almost local example of the theory you're talking about here of like, okay, well, maybe are there better ways to coordinate and cooperate just among like a local community of people? I'm curious, are there like immediate things that you're excited about? Or like, how are you kind of thinking about this as a coordination problem?
2: That's a good question. It's complicated, as is true for a lot of things. Totally. So on one hand, so what my organization, the Quantified Uncertainty Research Institute is doing is we're trying to provide specific tools to help coordination within this community, right? So we're right now working on relative values application. The idea is that it would be nice to have kind of specified utility functions for how valuable everything is. And my guess is that as we get this information, there are ways that that could be like pretty useful to making everyone more aligned with each other and pushing things in a good direction. That said, this is kind of an ambitious, more like futuristic, goal. I think practically speaking, the obvious stuff I'd like to see in effective altruism probably looks more like just following the best practices that we have that exist in other areas. So we probably need to just do a very good job before we start doing a super cutting edge job, Mm. so to speak. And what a good job looks like. So at least the way that I look at it is that a lot of EA's problems are bureaucracy problems. In fairness, I think a lot of global problems are bureaucracy problems the best bureaucracies that we have are probably sizable companies. So there's one question which is that where are we doing a good and bad job compared to what large companies would be like aiming for? I think in EA, like it is complicated, but one one way to look at it is that in EA right now, we have a, a collection of tiny little nonprofits and we're trying to coordinate this mesh of nonprofits with like one or you know, a few funders and yeah, right now it's like pretty difficult to do that without any like super great infrastructure around it. So there are questions about how do we take the best practices that like bigger organizations have and make sure that we have something that's like hypothetically like very flexible and also like in the future, decently well-trained and like have infrastructure that is quite a bit more powerful. A lot of this comes to maturation, right? So like a lot of startups when they're young and very ideological, They typically take other people who are ideological with them. And then you have a question, which is that when, at some point, they have to mature. At some point, they go from 10 people or 30 people to 100 or 1,000. And in that case, there needs to be some professional management brought in. Now, in many cases, that destroys the organization, and they kind of like lose what made them, or the the new management comes in and just does a terrible job. But in some cases, they're able to make it work. And in those cases, that typically is what leads to like the very good companies. And so
0: you see... EA as being in this transition period? Something like it needs to move from startup mode to big company mode?
2: Hopefully it doesn't have the connotations that people are used to when you say a big company. I think generally like we need to...
0: Larger, more mature organization. we, We
2: need to become more mature. I think there's a lot of that. There is a different lens to it, which is looking at EA as a social movement and then comparing it to other previous social movements. In that case, I'll flag that Social movements often don't last incredibly long and often they are very frustrating to do. Often you have like different groups of people who, like it's just not super fun sometimes to coordinate among like a group of a hundred people or a thousand people in kind of messy structures because people are always going to disagree with each other. And then you have government questions or governance questions to care about, making sure that people stay on the same page and agree to coordinate as opposed to just like losing hope very quickly or having disagreements about To them, what seems like what to them seems like gigantic, but often in the scheme of things, winds up being kind of small. So, so being able to like keep this group kind of focused and motivated, that's often a lot of work. I think it's like very easy to like give up midway, and unfortunately, I think after the FTX debacle, things have felt a lot less fun for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So right now, we're kind of seeing if I think some people are just kind of you know throwing their hands up and they just don't want to have to deal with it, and we'll see what stays and like how much enthusiasm there is to like really double down. I I think, I think that there's a lot to work with still. It kind of depends on like what community members feel like. Also another challenge now is that like AI safety is becoming like a much more intense topic. So more people are moving there. So there's probably some trade-offs between like how many senior people should we have trying to like figure out what an EA community is per se versus just like, focus specifically on ai safety organizations and then within ai safety should we like what kind of coordination can we have is this going to be like a whole bunch of dispersed organizations that can't do much with each other or is it going to be more of like an agentic cluster that could like take unilateral or t- take large scale actions as part of one one decision making process it,
0: it certainly sounds like you have a preference or an intuition for the latter, but maybe like more specifically something like in the classic trade-off between decentralized versus centralized structures, you think it would be good, at least on the margin, if things moved more centralized? Does that seem right? So
2: this is a bit of a nuanced topic, but generally, I I, I talk about a term justified trust. So the more justified trust you're able to have in agencies that are powerful the better like generally I think the step that we want is like we want agencies that we have justified trust in and then we want to give those agencies quite a bit of flexibility and power that said if we don't have justified trust in them if we have unjustified trust then that's a horrible idea right this is like another power tool that one like is amazing when you're able to have it work without totally messing up but if if you're worried about it messing up, then, then kind
0: of you can't play this card. So create really powerful estimation evaluation systems so that we can have organizations that have the level of justified trust necessary to be very powerful and agentic?
2: That's definitely one. Yeah. I mean, similarly, I think with the US government as an example,
0: mm-hmm. I
2: think that if we basically give up, on, like, libertarians kind of give up on the idea of government and say, like, we just can't we can't have justified trust in government. is always going to be a mistake. And if you take that route, then, yeah, the government can't do anything because it doesn't exist. On the other hand, if you have a gigantic government that you can't trust or you can't, then, yeah, that's like you're rigging with fire. But if you're able to have a government that you can trust, this may require kind of extreme measures. Like, this is kind of an empirical question of, like, what we need to make this. And my guess is that we should be much more intense about forcing our government to be trustworthy, right? That may probably require more procedures than we have now. Right now, I think most parties kind of have unjustified trust in that party's leadership in a really harmful way. But mm-hmm. hypothetically, if they just were a lot less trusting, unless they were like really proven of their own leadership, then they could really force their leadership to be better. And then if you're able to have leadership that you have justified trust in,
1: Wait, sorry, could you say a little more about how that would look? Like, it, yeah. let's say, you know, I, yeah. I imagine all of the major officials, either Democrats or Republicans, like having crisis of faith, being like, okay, we have too much trust in our leaders. We're going to yeah. only try to trust them as much as they deserve. And you were like, and then they could force them. So how does that part work?
2: Sure. So this, yeah, there's a lot you could, one, one big challenge is that a lot of what you would do would look bad for you in the short term. So imagine if there were prediction markets on, like, scandal markets on each politician messing up at every point in time. Like, we kind of know, like, a prediction for how likely every politician is to have an affair or to have other scandals. I think things like that could be pretty indicative of what we could expect. If we were being a bit more intense about it, political groups could have different types of surveillance on the officials to really triple check Mm -hmm. to make sure that they're not doing anything dubious. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of scandals really should just not be possible. Like in Bill Clinton's example, if I hypothetically, he he made some deal that said, if I ever do this type of scandal, all my money will be lost and donated to groups I don't like or that will try to sue me indefinitely. Like there there are ways that we could have done this to like really force his hand and make sure um, he's not gonna do anything like that. Hypothetically, the most surveilled people in the world should really be the leaders, right? Like they should go under quite a bit of extra scrutiny. You could also imagine the third parties that we trust in order to like really, yeah, just just monitor the okay. people very much on the top. Yeah.
1: So it's something like if people insisted on monitoring and commitment devices, then that's one way you see that leadership could have more justified trust.
0: Yeah. Do you think current leadership within a social community, let me, obviously EA is the one that comes to mind yeah. here, should do this? Like, would you suggest that like CEA board have pre-commitments or surveillance of themselves for and, and among top leadership?
2: So one of the big challenges with surveillance as I talk about it is, it, it, some of it is pretty novel and it probably would take a while. It would take work to get correct, right? So, you know, it's like, it's a novel thing that's going to take experimentation and effort. And that said, I imagine over time, like there are things like that that seem pretty good to me um, there are probably things that we could have done in the case of FTX for that leadership to prove that it wasn't doing things shady like that doesn't seem like it should have been an incredibly hard problem if we were really like on their case
1: it seems like you personally for sure have a lot of appetite for these sort of surveillance solutions and pre-commitments and things like that and also you're sort of pointing at like there's a practical or like a technological gap like this hasn't been used very much it hasn't been ironed out like But some of these things people could do, like, I'm guessing you don't look at the, I don't know, current politicians and think, well, you know, there's a technological gap, but they're sort of doing the best with the tools they have. And so I guess I'm, I I do wonder about that part. Like, you could make it, certainly make it cheaper to do these things by having more tools, more affordances, and maybe over time that would make it more normal. But is there something where... Because when I try to imagine it, I'm like, okay, but then there's the part where people would w- have to want to do it. And that's the part I have trouble imagining.
2: It's, it's definitely going to take steps for us to get from here to there. I think right now we don't have as candid a culture as I would like us to have. I think that there's definitely a very big spectrum between like how candid different organizations are. And most people are in one camp. When it comes to powerful posi- people in these types of positions, typically they have like groups of people around them where it's very convenient for those groups to not question the leadership that much because they're trying to help the leadership. So in the case of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, both sides, like all of the people in the top power structure are often kind of incentivized to help out other people in that power structure. So unless they have like, unless people really try to distrust them for some reason, they don't have much of an incentive to actually set up institutions like this. But I think that if a lot of the voter base um, understood that they should trust politicians less. Like there are ways that if people generally required more verification before trusting each other. I think some of that would happen, right? But but the way that things are going right now is that like any political side only needs one half of the electorate to be voted in. And it's pretty easy to get, you know, at least one half to- Does it um, come
1: back to voting reform? Is voting reform on your list?
2: But like arguably, like we could do similar things on like smaller orgs. But like it is, you know, it's like a change, right? Like this is like a things a set of things that would be cool, but it it does work for people who appreciate how little they should trust each other and how important it is to make sure that the people in power have extra attention on them. And, you know, like t- typically the people in power try to not make that happen, so.
0: Yeah, I guess something interesting that comes up on this for me is when I think about it as like something around boundaries. Like I imagine if I were a politician in this point and somebody's like, all right, you should surveil yourself 24-7 to prove that you are not taking bribes. Yeah. My um, Outside of the weirdness thing, because obviously we have a high quotient for tolerance for weirdness, there's some way in which I'm like, oh, but I don't know. This is like some kind of invasion of my privacy, the boundaries I consider my space. And I think one thing that I'm noting in a theme in this like specific, obviously many, a lot more nuances needed proposal, but the other things as well, like relying upon outside reasoning systems, outside evaluation systems is something where you're making the case where it's like, no, actually a lot of our concepts of like boundaries or something are, is like wrong, or it's certainly not like, efficiency maximizing or it doesn't work well in the like world of today. Is that, is that fair? By the way, I'm, I wish I hadn't used the word boundaries because I'm a little bit like, I don't know, that seems loaded in a positive sense where I'm like, I don't know, it's some way of like, what's the right kind of like apportioning of, of like decision-making and like concepts like privacy.
2: So, I mean, this kind of goes hand in hand with candidness and transparency, right? Like typically leadership want other people to know as little about themselves and what they're doing as possible. So that that way they could reveal only the information that's advantageous to them, right? Like that's a preferable world to join in. And the more information that you have to reveal, the worse outside of that.
0: And you want to strike a new social contract, not to make it too big or something, but it is something where it's like, no, for these things, we should have a different apportioning of where the public interest and your private space lies.
2: So effectively, I think that people in really important positions should effectively have less privacy. What but they, they probably already do to
1: a certain extent.
2: But hypothetically, there are ways that there, 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 there are different kinds of contracts and agreements that they could do to help make sure that they could be trusted by more people. And I think that like those things should be on the table. That doesn't mean that this information has to be public. For example, you could just have third party agencies that kind of monitor things and make sure that things are okay, or in the future maybe AIs and no people involved that just like kind of just keep an eye on things. There's a whole lot of tools in your toolkit. Again, one of them is just to have prediction markets on the quality of the decisions by these people or the likelihood that politicians will get into scandals. Robin Hanson had the idea that there are prediction markets on if the CEO is fired by each company, will the stock price go up or down and by how much? That is a kind of thing that CEOs aren't going to like in a lot of cases because like why would they? That's just like they could always they're pretty good well, at spin stories. Or
1: some of them might like it though because if they thought which is maybe why you think that this could eventually be a stable equilibrium. Like the ones yeah. who think that, who want the justified trust, who are confident that they are trustworthy and want other people to know, they would presumably want it.
2: There, there's a small fraction. Like, like a whole lot of the ones who should have the trust, justified trust are already pretty good at convincing people. That's how they got into this role. So it's really the ones that aren't super good at convincing people, but would be if they had this other information, like there'd be the ones that want it. But this is kind of a narrow crowd. And typically, when you whenever you change an evaluation procedure, the people who are losing out on it complain a whole lot. And the people who like it don't give it that much support in comparison. So it typically is change, it's difficult to change the evaluation procedures. But this is like part of a long road of us continuously getting better and better evaluation procedures in order to become better and more and more coordinated, right? Like we, we already have some things like this. We have a lot of like There are a lot of, you know, financial records that have to be public, like people in positions of power do have boards that go over them, that check them in different ways. I'm kind of saying that we kind of continue this road and do more and more things like this so that we could continue to get in a much better position.
1: Right. So you're saying that you do expect there to be resistance for a bunch of structural reasons But if you look at the past and you're like, well, in fact, more and more of kind of the sort of things that you've been talking about have been put into place over the years. So you don't think it's unrealistic that there could be even more in the future?
2: Oh, no. Yeah, I think this is a very long road of like intellectual infrastructure that we need to make and we're on part of it, but we have we have a very far way to go. And I think the types of things that I'm talking about are things that would help us go along.
0: What's the lowest hanging fruit in this intellectual infrastructure journey that you'd like to see picked?
2: So my work, of course, is in, the main work is in estimation systems, at scale, right? So like, can we use, how, how do we apply things like the forecasting infrastructures that we have today and make much more interesting versions of them over the next like five to 30 years and like use that to solve a lot of problems? One cool thing that you could do with that is that you could use it to figure out what to do with it. Right? So if you're very good at estimating you could have a list of like what are all these different things that we could estimate and then for each one How valuable would it be to estimate? And so for example, the whole government is gigantic, it's a monolith, or there are many It's huge. So trying to influence the government in the abstract is probably a bad idea But if you're very sophisticated you could figure out very specific parts of the government that are a very good risk to reward ratio and you could say like this specific department is much more likely to be influenced by third-party information and actually, like would be very valuable to be influenced. So we're gonna go after that section. Obviously, my guess is that from an expected value, like an a effective altruism lens, improving the decisions of effective altruists will be like the best bang for your buck in the short term. And then even within that, there are questions about like how to best do that. My hope is that what I'd like to see, but I realize that this is a bit too candid for some people. I think there's some like truth shock that when people get certain amounts of information or truth, they're really just uncomfortable with it if they're not used to it. So one example of that is like, can we just have a list of how valuable everything is in effective altruism on some utility functions, or hopefully like a set that represents different values? If we did that, some people would lose out on it because like some people are able to, you know, right now people think that they have more status than such a list would say that they have. So there will be a pushback. And then people really, some people really, Would find things stressful for different reasons they're not used to it so yeah but hypothetically if the more we're able to go in this direction that could then tell us the next steps right so if you have a, a pretty decent utility function where you've used forecasters to determine what projects were useful in the past then hypothetically you could get a sense of like oh maybe the estimation types of projects were very useful or maybe the governance projects were kind of useful so then you could start using this systematized thinking procedure to then take the corresponding best actions And that includes like in estimation and governance. But again, this is like very much the ambitious way of doing it. There's less ambitious takes that are more like, let's just take kind of the more most reasonable people and like get them to take them pretty good, like, yeah, solidly good options.
0: How do you anticipate handling deep value disagreements when it comes to valuation? For instance, some kind of split between group A and group B in terms of how they value a project because of underlying disagreements about, you know, even the concept of the value the project is producing.
2: So there's, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff to do in those cases, as long as you have people who use similar, I guess, like epistemic values. So if if people are willing to lie and cheat in order to promote their values and they're harder to coordinate with, but if you have people who are reasonable and kind of honest, then there are a lot of ways you could do trade in those cases, I've been working on a relative, alu- a relative values way of doing estimation, where you basically have people estimate, like for any item in this huge list, how valuable is every item versus every other item. And I think what you find when, like, we haven't really done it at scale yet, but my impression is that a lot of people probably have a lot of agreement on the subclusters. So for example, like people may disagree on how valuable AI safety is compared to bio risk work, but there may be a lot of agreement that like between, in, within bio, these projects kind of follow this ranking, right? So I think that like people with very different beliefs could still have agreements on a lot of these sub areas and then work together to try to do their best at making sure that there's like local decision-making is optimal. Like you've optimized your local a maximum. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to bigger global things, on one hand, there are cases where like someone believes something that's kind of strange and they just go off and maximize it because it's in their best interest. And you help, hopefully you could help them. Like they could have their own utility estimate, like function estimates that like help inform them and in how to do that. There are other cases where two which two parties will do will fight each other, right? Like Democratic and Republican donors may just be directly canceling each other out. In those cases, like if you're able to coordinate,
1: mm. then
2: you get around that, right? Then you say like, look, there are these issues that our interests cancel, so let's just not focus on those intru- issues mutually, and like find other types of things to do that aren't going to cancel out in this way. Like this is like a trading game. It is kind of embarrassing that, of course, we can't do this. So there's an American society. That is one thing that pretty obviously seems like an improvement, a set of improvement potential. I'm not talking so much about the money spent on politics, but more attention and effort spent on politics. A lot of it is just kind of canceling out.
0: Right. So build up really good estimates from the ground up for these different groups, and then foster an environment where people can hold either through contracts, pre-commitments, whatever, can hold to the agreements such that the mutually wasteful red queen race style dynamics are alleviated.
2: Yeah, that's, yeah, so estimation utopia is kind of the word that I have for like this world where everything mm-hmm. is parameter, like a lot of key items are parameterized and estimated. And the estimates are, we have justified trust in those estimates are like good, and people know that they're good. Um, and in that world, there's a lot of stuff that we could do very nicely. Another example is warfare. So warfare is often like, it is often for one thing an example of like when private interest trust trump public interests right because like some interests do very well when war happens and those interests are incentivized to try to make war happen unfortunately it seems like the ones that don't want war to happen don't seem to coordinate as well like we don't have gigantic public charities just trying to fight the the in the war industrial complex but hypothetically yeah. we could like hypothetically there's enough expected value on the table That if people could coordinate with each other to fund groups to fight, yeah, to to go against that, they could help ensure peace at a global scale. Because like in general, it's in the public's interest for there to be less warfare.
0: Yeah. I just have to make an aside because it keeps coming up when I I think about this, which is I've been reading a little bit about the movement to formalize math and the way in which like for a long period of time or like, uh, you know, at, at some point people realize that Within this community, like, all right, math was not actually on these foundational, fundamentally, intellectually stable basis. And there was a whole long movement to formalize all of the axioms that had previously been just kind of trusted without being investigated. And I keep thinking like, oh, maybe maybe this is kind of what Ozzy is trying to do for social movements or society. Something about like formalizing everything like from the bottom up in terms of not in terms of like logical mathematical precepts, but something more about like, well, formalizing it on the basis of the kind of zine thinking representations. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like a state of the art epistemic tools that we have.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think from my perspective, basically, if you take
2: a lot of like empirical or the enlightenment Western canon and keep on scaling it with technology, there are a lot of ways to use that kind of thinking in order to just like Yeah, in order to make decisions in the best ways at scale, right? Like we kind of know a lot of good principles and we want to apply that to all the fuzzy stuff. Right now, what I see is I see a lot of key decisions in the world being made by gut judgments, by individuals and pet beliefs. That feels very far from doing anything that has been optimized. I'd also flag that there's probably a lot of shared infrastructure that we can make to try to do this type of thinking at scale. Basically, we want to take these high level value judgments and we want to turn that into a kind of labor that we could heavily optimize and that's going to mean that it's going to be heavily systematized very clear and specific and then yeah hopefully industrial grade but that's definitely you know it it's just like going along the chain some people hate this whole kind of paradigm There are definitely people who hate you know the enlightenment way of thinking who hate empiricism and they're going to disagree with a lot of this right But yeah,
1: maybe this is a, I don't know if this is the sort of question that makes sense to ask, but do you know why you like enlightenment thinking and empiricism? Like if you imagine, you know, talking to somebody who's more skeptical and you got all the way down to like, no, but I just want to scale the, scale the enlightenment thinking and the empiricism. And they're like, but why? What would you say?
2: So, yeah, I mean, this is a big question. At the end of the day, it does kind of bottom out in some intuitions about kind of reasonable ways of doing things and i think at the end of the day would have like different intuitions and it's kind of hard to explain those intuitions i could go into a bunch of examples or like arguments or if there are like specific things that we disagree with i could explain why i think that this type of paradigm makes sense in those cases a lot of the alternative cases would be something like postmodernism where for example there may be styles where you're not supposed to be super clear about what you think or you're supposed to yeah. use more metaphorical thinking. Yeah.
1: Okay. So, I mean, I guess that's true. Certainly yeah. postmodernism is very popular. To me, the the intellectual competitor that I respect the most that seems like potentially opposed is like Hayekian thinking. It's like central planning. I think you're like, okay, central planning is fine if we could just improve our ability at calculation and solve yeah. it. That's what, sort of what I hear you saying. And maybe that's not how you would put it. But I think I certainly sometimes have the intuition that I don't know if it's really possible to like people can get better at calculating but i don't know if that means they can solve the calculation problem because it often does seem like there are a lot of corrupting forces that sort of manage to get in there more the more leg- like that there's a lot of benefit to having things be more legible but then if pe- things are both legible and centralized they could get corrupt maybe faster like I, so i guess that's one place that i may be coming from on this
2: yeah. So there's a lot here. I'd say, yeah, some of my thinking is very technocratic. It's like saying like, how can we do the technocratic dream but actually well? Because the technocratic dream is like very easily to be decorrupted. I'd agree with that. And yeah, you know, it's like very much like a power tool. So if you have the wrong people use it, they'll be very wrong. So it's a question of like, there are kind of different approaches. One is to say, like, let's give up on the technocratic dream. Let's like stop using all of these cool tools and go back to other types of ways of making decisions. I don't know exactly how great those ways are. Like my impression is that a lot of those ways are just either not having centralized ish groups. I, I don't know what they are. Like okay, it I, seems like gut judgments and like poetry. I think and, my yeah.
1: counterpoint is like, I certainly don't have any quibbles with the, like I think trying to quantify things and think about things systematically. Like I, I'm not inclined to disagree with you there. I think it's the centralization piece is the part that gives me more pause. So it, like, is it possible to sort of separate out those intuitions?
2: I would say a lot of my thinking isn't super centralized. Um, like most of the stuff yeah, about maybe how I'm to do uh, you. like most of the estimations at scale is something where you don't really need much centralization. Like you could use large-scale prediction markets and stuff like that to be kind of accurate. And when you have a so-called centralized figure, the centralized figure would be something like a hedge fund that has a specific contract to be accurate, and mm-hmm. its hands would be tied from being able to do about anything other than just like provide accurate estimates, right? Well, hypothetical.
1: So I do
2: think yeah, I, maybe. <laughs> I think that like, there are specific approaches that I haven't outlined yet that would help create that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do hope that like people, like I said, that people are very skeptical of authority figures. So I think we would agree with that. Right. There are questions about like what ways that we could do to kind of ensure that we could have authorities to different levels of power. And then there's also questions of like, do we even have options? Like in the world as it is, there are some players that just have a lot of power. And we may not be able to reduce that a whole lot. So maybe there are things that we could do to at least um, try to oversee them better, right? So one example of this are the boards of the new AI safety or the AI companies. Mm-hmm. Like they may be in positions of like huge amounts of authority. It's not like, yeah, it, it could be great to try to decentralize that, but I don't know if that's an option. So given that these things are kind of already there, well, how do we make sure that they go, yeah?
1: Okay, I mean, that's true that I I don't I haven't heard any I mean, I guess there are some people who say, well, make it open, like, try to encourage open source development. That's one idea I've heard for decentralizing it. People, there are a lot of objections yeah. that I think I'm very sympathetic to, to that. But that said, I think there are also a lot of proposals for further centralizing things, which I think are very much inside the Overton window. So I don't, I don't know. How do you feel about that sort of thing?
2: So it's complicated. On AI specifically, yeah. I think that some amounts of centralization, like I think in a lot of cases when things are very important, some amounts of centralization are very useful. However... There's a big difference between centralization that allows individuals to do things that are their pet beliefs and in their self interests, and yeah. centralization where the people in charge, their hands are tied and they're not able to do anything outside of what is in the public's benefit. And I think there are ways that we could get more to the latter. And those mm-hmm. are generally what we should be. I think things like that look kind of powerful.
1: And these would be the He's, things we've mostly been talking about.
0: Yeah. 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 Yeah, I want to go back to the concept you had of like justified trust, because I think one way that I heard advocating for or being more okay with centralization relative to a Hayekian paradigm is something like, instead of having, for instance, the market or market forces and, and the kind of competition there as a check, you would be more okay with large groups provided there is some system that is developed that acts as a check on those groups like is that like I'm, I'm just i've been hearing a crux or something around the like well if it was a large enough if it was a powerful large capable group it is better provided there is something that can act as a investigator auditor shackles that sure. bind the giant or something
2: so a lot of my interest is like a bit orthogonal to the mm. question of like how big power figures do you want. A mm. lot of it's more just like, how do we do estimation at scale? Um, mm. Which is kind of provocative in its own right, because mm. that is like very transparent and very honest in a way that people aren't used to. When it comes to power, like for one thing, if the prediction markets of the future said, you should do things in a decentralized way, I'd be happy with that. If they say that you should do things in a centralized way, I would be happy with that, as long as we could kind of trust and have some justified trust in the prediction markets, which I think that with the right work, we should be able to. My guess is that, if you do things using predictions, practically speaking, that would do a lot of the work that a centralized power would otherwise do. Like having a good list of just like how valuable everything is. One of the main things that typically centralized figures do is they kind of make up the utility function It's kind of them to judge how valuable things are. So you kind of want to take that away from them and into a paradigm that we have a lot more faith in, right? And then there are just a lot of ways to take away authority from groups that we may give control to, right? So one way is like kind of tying their hands, saying that like they kind of need to be, sorry, it's complicated. So on one hand you have like prediction markets. So sorry, futrarchy is Robin Hansen's idea of using prediction markets to formally make a few like big high level decisions.
1: Right, conditional prediction markets in particular. Yeah.
2: But um, there's a big spectrum there of how we want to use similar tools in order to guide the government, right? So right now the government, for example, like cost-benefit analysis is kind of baked into different legislation, right? Like the U.S. has to kind of at least pretend to justify cost-benefit analysis in order to get bills approved. If you do a whole, like they don't like that. That's kind of like less agency that the government has, even though they're, they have a lot of ability to do things w- with that, right? So my guess is like, in a world with a lot of estimations, it would be very obvious how to judge executives, like the board would be able to see, like, did this executive improve performance, like exactly how valuable was this executive's work. And the executive themselves would be ab- basically be able to see, like, for everything that I do, this is how valuable it is. And if I do something that's not optimal, then people are going to get upset with me. Like, they'll be able to flag very quickly, like what you did was not optimal. If you get very advanced, of course, what you could do is start tying incentives more directly to this. So it's not just a question of like, as an exec, are you hired or fired? It's much more that we have like some utility function of how good of a job you did. And your the money that you make is very directly correlated with that function. Of course, you can get a little bit better than that. But you basically have a lot of ways to force the people in power, like force their hand in order to do what is in the interest of the collective. Although hopefully you have a collective that's like, a big collective as opposed to a narrow one that's able to more effectively do bad things. So coming back to the FTX example, there's a question of how could we have figured out that not that they were committing fraud, like arguably that would have been very hard. We would have had a look in the books, but just knowing that they had a series of very sketchy behavior right, and that was known for about for a long time. But that definitely wasn't obvious to a lot of people, right? Like a lot of the EA community assumed that they were very squeaky clean overall and that they've been vetted and understood. And they definitely put out an image of themselves as being like very competent and highly trustworthy. But I think a lot of that you could have figured out was like pretty sketchy if you would have done some digging. If there would have been an agency with like one to $400,000 per year that did nothing but try to find red flags about FTX and then present those flags to the public, just like a monitoring agency for this group that was like, the public was basically putting many billions of dollars of investment in, right? So it would make sense that the public would also be incentivized or be interested to do some coordinated checking and a monitoring and evaluation.
0: I think that that, like, yeah. That makes sense to me though. I have this skepticism when I think about the track record of those kinds of organizations in the past. Like I think of the example of Bernie Madoff and the stories of how the people that were supposed to be investigating and auditing him ended up getting hoodwinked multiple times in somewhat embarrassing ways like i remember one story about him like entertaining them in a specific office and make while like people were upstairs like trying to create the fraud in like some kind of ridiculous comical way another story i'll try to link the show notes so i like hear you and i agree it seems like there should be ways to do that to like both investigate intensely and find it but it it, it doesn't feel like we have great track records for those orgs now. What do you think is going to change or how, how can we do it? better? I suppose better technology for one.
2: I think it's hard to use anecdotal ish evidence like that in order Fair. to make a bigger claim, because in many cases they are caught. And that's one reason why arguably like maybe would have way more Bernie Madoff's if there wasn't that type of digging. So like maybe in like in Bernie Madoff's case, obviously he was able to get around it. But in other cases they weren't in SBF's case. They definitely did a bunch of very sketchy things from what I understand on, like the fact that they didn't really keep books, the fact that they didn't really seem to have a board, the fact that they did things with investors that a lot of investors found very red flaggy. Like they would apparently send them deal sheets one day before that wouldn't allow them to do any due diligence before having to make a decision. So they they also had had that guy,
1: like the lawyer or something that was involved with some poker scandal that a lot yeah, of people in retrospect were like yeah that yeah. guy <laughs> yeah and also like with crypto since we're talking a lot about technological improvements and i don't actually know the details with these tokens but one of the promises with the crypto stuff is that crypto forensics should be able to sniff some of this out and there are are often reasons why people are like okay well we can't find these coins and whatever it'd be like well this is like there's sort of some game of various explanations for why the crypto forensics don't always turn up what they think. But I guess I am going to say, I think that seems like one way an agency could have looked into it that isn't always possible Yeah. on top of all the other red flags.
2: In terms of at least like failing with dignity, quote, quote, like, do we think that the public did a good job in trying to investigate this and was misled? Or do we think that the public just like <laughs> did a terrible job in like doing anything coordinated and just got hoodwinked super easily? I think we fall a lot more into the latter camp. Like, it doesn't seem like he had to try that much to deceive the public. It seemed amazingly pathetic how much he was able to get away with so easy. Like, he didn't have to disguise these things. So I think that, like, yeah, it's very possible that if there would have been much better measures in place, they would have been able to better deal with them. However, I think that does change. Like, I think that's generally the direction that we want to go. Like, we want to make it more difficult for someone to get away with things like that. And it's pretty clear that we weren't trying that hard collectively, both with an effect of altruism. I don't think that there is that much coordinated effort to research him and to do like a lot of systematic digging before we kind of went to bed with him and like took, you know, there's a lot that the EA community had on the line with this relationship. But then more generally, you'd think that within crypto, $8 billion at stake. Hypothetically, that community could have like self-funded some organization to do some digging. Like obviously, it would be a lot of coordination work to do that self-funding in the existing world that we have. But I think in a more sophisticated, pleasant world, it would be Basically, like bodies would be making good trades where they money would go to groups that would do a good job representing lots of people, right? And in this case, that would mean like doing more due diligence and evaluation and monitoring of FTX. In other cases, it would do that on a bigger scale. In crypto in general, it seems like <laughs> this happens all the time. So it is like kind of embarrassing that we don't have good agencies to oversee things. Because,
0: yeah. Do you have forward looking. Pro- Addictions? Are there groups right now where you're like, oh, there's like a fair bit of systemic risk maybe with this group? I would love to see more evaluations, either in your local community or, or broader. I mean, I think everywhere, just like
2: period, like we just generally don't have, like people have a lot of faith in people that they're kind of close to or kind of in the same movement as them or something, often quite a bit too much. And there are a lot of places where they're scary. Generally, like I expect Apple to do what's in the best interest of Apple. And I think with public companies, we kind of have a good understanding of what the risks are and like how bad it gets and like what their incentives are. In the cases of governments or charitable endeavors that can become scarier, especially when they start doing really scary things. One really big question mark are the board members who are in charge of the AI organizations. So OpenAI's board, is kind of responsible for this incredibly important thing. And it's possible that once a windfall clause, or they don't call it that, but like once the 10X thing hits, if OpenAI's vision is achieved and they're able to make AGI and kind of dominate the future funding of the whole world, the people kind of in charge of that formally are going to be the OpenAI board members. Mm-hmm.
1: And people- Also, sorry, can yeah. we just, in case all our listeners don't know, I believe this the way this works is they're like a special type of like nonprofit hybrid where the investors can get- up to a hundred times their investment back but no more than that is that did I get that right?
2: Something like that. Okay. I think different investors have different amounts if they get back I see. some of the more recent ones maybe not quite hundred but like after 100x, I think all the money kind of goes to open AI
1: mm-hmm.
2: and the people in charge of open AI are the OpenAI board right so this is like a very important group of people like basically whatever this group of people wants to do with the money, I think they basically can. Like it is a five, you know, it is a charity, which means that it's bound by the charity things. But I think that only matters insofar that they could get charity donations, like they could kind of do whatever they want outside of that. And um, if they've made money this way, it's kind of up to them to do. So it's basically up to the board and the like ultimately, and then the, the CEO to kind of decide what happens with the future of humanity's money which is kind of one world that this could go in. And that's like an incredibly crazy position for a group that's been like unelected. Um, Most people have no clue who these people are. Yeah, there's a question of like- I'm looking
0: right now at the board because I did not know who they were. And I I guess this will be another thing I link, but like, for instance, I did not know Adam D'Angelo, who I believe is the founder of Quora, is on the OpenAI board. I don't know some of these names and I am now curious because you're right. There's a very powerful or like potentially futurely powerful institution and the board is uh, nominally in control of it.
2: And there's a question of like, if, if there were one company that was responsible for one fifth of global GDP or something just ridiculous, what, what, what things can we have in place that would make us potentially trust the group at all, right? Right. Like, there, is there anything that we could do? to try to make sure that the people in charge don't just do whatever their own self-interest says it would like, this is like a ridiculous situation. So I think that like, this is something that like, yes, we should be like really nervous about this and like very curious if there's anything that we could do to like help make sure that this doesn't go haywire.
1: Okay. Can I try to name what I'm like, how I am not trying to think about how I would describe how you're thinking about this. Can I try to name it?
2: Yeah.
1: Okay. So, I think a thing I often it seems like maybe a pattern of thought of yours, feel free to correct me, is that you sort of imagine various interest groups, like you'll say the public or like the American citizens or whatever. And then you kind of I'm imagining that you imagine, OK, like assume that we're sort of I were judging that group as though it were a single person, as though that were like a friend of mine. No. Would I think their actions were reasonable? And then you sort of have like a, an impression about that. Often you think they're not. And then you see the sort of gap between like what I think is reasonable if a person did this, but okay, fine, maybe it's like, you know, 200 million people, so it's harder. And you see that kind of like as an engineering problem to be solved with better tools for thought, better tools for like yeah. for sharing information, better commitment devices, things like that. Does that seem sort of roughly right?
2: I mean, it is like a very broad infrastructure that you're talking about that we kind of have this abstract notion of what the utility function is of a large group of people, which is something yeah. that you could approximate, right? You say like, right. what are different scenarios that are going to be better and worse for this group of people, depending on what the group of people says, right? And then you have the question of like, how good of a job does that group of people seem to be doing on that unsaid utility function? Right. And yeah, I'd argue that they're not like, I'd argue that we should be pushing for better. I think that like, there are a lot of tools that we have available to us. That we could use to allow groups of people to do better on their own utility functions. Right. The word "should" is a messy word. The word like, like how good should we expect people to do and stuff like that. Like, I don't know how to say things like that. But I guess yeah, it's, like, it's, it's hard yeah. to talk
1: about for sure. Yeah. yeah.
2: But I think that but, like with the resources that we have within any of our toolkits, there are things that we could do with some of those resources to get us into better positions.
1: Right? Yeah. It de- it definitely seems like you identify that gap as like. I don't know. That's like an area of opportunity that you want to work on.
0: Yeah. And this ties into your current work, which maybe you could say a little bit more on because you talked a little bit about it earlier, but it might be good to expand on relative value estimation. That's the current main focus of yourself in Query.
2: Of course. Yeah. So Query, Quantified Uncertainty Research Institute, the big picture is like, how do we make, or the big picture that I'm interested in is like, how do we make these like very advanced estimation infrastructure systems Mm -hmm. and then apply them to many things? And there's a whole lot of details into like what the engineering architecture of such a system should actually look like. Taking up a big step back, now all the rage is AI. So there's a big question of like, maybe we just want to ask language models every last thing, in which case you don't have to think much more about like world models and doing parameterized modeling. That's kind of like a different bag of worms. I'm more focused on like, how do we do it using technologies that kind of exist today? So yeah, then there's questions of what that looks like. I think there are probably a bunch of innovations that we want in order to do a good job in order us to get from maybe like a level six, where we are now to like a level 10, where we may want to be like a few years from now. We've been working on some of those tools. So one of them is estimation functions. So right now on existing forecasting platforms, people forecast binary decisions or binary events, and sometimes they forecast numbers. In some very specific cases, they'll forecast a few time series variables, so they'd say, um, what's the distribution like for these five points in time? We're interested in having forecasters write functions that then could express much more sophisticated forecasts. So a forecaster would basically express, for any point in time in the next 20 years, this is what I think the GDP of every single country and state and region is going to be. So this is something that you can only really encode using code. Like you have to express it using some like code and then we need infrastructure to make sure that that code actually gets aggregated so different forecasters could submit their code and then the code gets run whenever people want to understand what the forecast is for any collection of items. But hypothetically, this allows forecasters to express a much bigger space of ideas. So in the future, yeah, basically like, we want to experiment with this. Now this is hard. Um, a lot of forecasters don't know how to write code that well. It definitely requires like more sophistication and also more infrastructure but it also does come with a lot more power. So in order to do that, we've been working on Squiggle, which is a programming language that runs on top of JavaScript. So it works very well with these program browser workflows. It works well on websites. So Squiggle is kind of like Guestimate, the programming language. So it's like kind of like a more powerful version of Guestimate, of course, this programming language, so you don't get some of the UI that you get with Guestimate. So it's like a different set of things. But getting this right has been taking a lot of time, but we have started kind of using it for forecasting. And we want to make that a much bigger thing, of course. But of course, it's a question of like, it is kind of on the cutting edge of the forecasting infrastructure. Relative values specifically, sorry for the rant here. It's like kind of a, a lot of stuff. Relative values, I think, are one cool thing that you could start doing when you have programming functions like this. So when most people, it's kind of a hard idea for a lot of people. I think it is a bit nuanced. When people think about utility functions, and valuing things, they typically think about doing it all on one scale. So you may yes. value what a company does in terms of money, or you may value health interventions in terms of qualities. But if you want to estimate the value of the very different types of things, then you really can't use any one unit to do so, because when you convert things into that unit, it adds a huge amount of uncertainty. So if you wanted to estimate like, how valuable is everything in long-termism on the same scale, it's not obvious what the scale or unit even is, We may be able to use a term like microdooms or microtopias, which kind of tell us like one millionth of a chance of the world ending, that you'd be like diverting by this intervention or, but those are pretty messy. So a better way of doing it, or like a more sophisticated way, although it's like more energy to do, basically allowing people to express the different values for any two interventions. So like for any two interventions that you give me, I basically tell you the ratio of how much better one is compared to the other. And this is more work. Because now I have to do this for this n by n combination space.
1: Wait, sorry. So I'm a, but you're imagining interv- in interventions of roughly the same type, but that you, like, wouldn't be natural to describe with the same units?
2: So you could do that. And I think that's where a lot of the benefit is. But it would also allow you to do it on different clusters of things. So, for example, within long-termism, you could say maybe within the Miri-style agenda you could say Mm -hmm. like this paper is probably like four to 10 times as valuable as this paper. And this tweet is probably like one to thousandths as valuable as this paper or something Mm -hmm. like that. Right. So you could basically like clarify, like we have pretty decent understandings of how good these things are compared to each other within this like cluster.
1: Okay. So you imagine mostly use it within a cluster. So it wouldn't be like, how much is this Miri paper worth compared to this? I don't know, like animal welfare bill.
2: So I think that, you would get both but a lot of the focus would be on the clusters okay so like um basically what estimators would be doing 99 percent of the time is estimating things within clusters but the moment you estimate the comparison between one item in one cluster and an item in a different cluster then if you want to you could use that to then calculate how valuable that like those clusters are compared to each other and it will be very uncertain like it'll be like a very wide probability distribution
1: Yeah, and I think this is sort of what you were saying before, and this is one reason that even though, of course, people have value differences, you're optimistic that there's still a lot of, I don't know, like fruit to be picked, if not low hanging, like maybe labor intensive, but not like philosophically complicated fruit to be picked from that people often have a lot of agreement within the clusters. And then you could have sort of like broad parameters or like people could put in their own values for between clusters, but within clusters, there may be more agreement.
2: Yeah, I think there's basically like a whole lot of local optimizations to do. Mm -hmm. And that's often true. For for example, in a lot of companies, it's very unclear. Like the company's net worth or market cap may be like an extrapolation of what its total earnings going to be over its lifetime, which may only really take place like 10 to 50 years from now. Right. So if you were to try to make all decisions based on what will maximize, like its Mm -hmm. expectation on that, it would just be like very, a a lot of the items would go through the same uncertainties. So they'd be very uncertain. But you could be, it's a very, very safe bet that you just optimize for money this year. And then that's a pretty decent thing of optimizing money for 20 years from now, right? Right. And then a lot of decisions are also just like very localized. So you may have to choose between, we have three candidates for a specific position and we have to choose the best candidate. So we don't really need to judge how good each one of them is on this gigantic scale right now. Mm -hmm. Um, We just have to figure out how good they are compared to each other. But as long as we're able to do a decent job at that, that's able to get us pretty far. So if we if we if we're able to like do a decent job okay, so, at all so these little maybe,
1: yeah, this might sound like a stupid question, but sure. I mean, is that? But are you implicitly thinking like how good are they compared to each other at maximizing the lo- like? I guess I'm a little bit confused about why that's easier or something. Even though like of course, I don't know. Also, of course, it seems easier. Like, is this specific, because in some sense, like, the way that I'm comparing the candidates to each other is I'm implicitly or explicitly doing some calculation about adding long-term value to the organization, right?
2: Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully. Um, And the way that most people make this decision is that they don't try to put numbers on it. They just, like, do the best in each item, in each cluster. And that works the best, right? Basically, I'm trying to figure out a way to prescribe numbers to all these things that could mm-hmm. then very trivially be understood in terms of the global thing when you want to. But this you don't need me. to. Yeah. This is,
1: I, I don't know if this yeah. is that relevant, but it's reminding me ages ago, I read that book, How to Measure Everything
2: yeah, or know. Anything,
1: which yeah. I imagine you've read too. I'm a big fan. Yeah, yeah it, it reminds me a lot of that. And what I remember is, this: has been a long time since I read it, it was, this is the book, it's like people have all these sort of complaints about why measurement isn't perfect, but like, is that really a reason not to at least try?
2: Yeah, I think in, in, in the world that I'm trying to aim for is one where we have estimates. Well, I mean, he kind of gets to it. Like, we should have estimates of the value of estimating things, right. right? So, like, we do that first, and if it comes out that estimating things is negative, that could be for multiple reasons. One is that it's too hard. Another one is that it's, like, too politically unfavorable. Like, if you did it, it would look very bad for you, so you just could be it. could be because
1: you you estimate that the, answer, the potential choices are, in fact, very similar in value. It could be,
2: yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's kind of, like, the value of information.
1: Yeah. Like it was just mm-hmm. like
2: not that valuable to do the estimate for. So there's a lot of ways you do that. Of course, if you want to get more advanced, you have value functions that say like, you know, for spending five hours on this, this is about how much value you'll get. If you do 20 hours, this is about, so therefore you should like cut off at right. seven. Do
0: so you, you anticipate to, yeah. this kind of approach being a power tool? Something like how there are super forecasters that there would be super estimators who are using it, or is the anticipation to make like a tool of thought that could be used by your Average business analyst. So I'm definitely not thinking
2: about the average business analyst. I guess business analyst maybe I think I've kind of one term I've kind of liked using. Although this is not a copyrighted thing, like super forecaster is a copyrighted thing. But hypothetically, we want like some really good forecasters who could also write code and do mm. it in this like more extensive way. Mm. So one term for that hypothetically is like a super duper forecaster. <laughs> <laughs> <a> non
1: copyrighted terms.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah. You've like
0: one up them. <laughs>
2: Like hypothetically what these procedures would be like. So obviously I like solving things in estimation terms. So one way to do that is by um, basically estimating which estimation technique will be the most effective. Um, and there are a few ways of getting that to happen. One is like with contract mechanisms where we basically put out offers of like who could estimate this big set of things for the cheapest. And then we have clients take that on. And then there's a kind of an empirical question about which specific structure is going to be able to do estimating at scale the most cost effectively. My guess is that a lot of what this will look like are hedge fund-like entities. So basically imagine a team of like five to 12 people with very different skill sets. Some of them are great at writing code. Some of them are great at doing like object investigations. Some of them just like provide data. Some like go out in the real world and try to interview the people Mm -hmm. that they need to. And basically these collectives have an agreement where they get paid in proportion to how correct they are, right? So like how accurate their forecasts are. And yeah, they get money in, and then provide estimates out, and maybe in you know some cases like some other kinds of information, like reasoning and explanations behind it. So yeah, I would like to see like professional infrastructure of different types. I think that this type is going to be pretty cost effective. One reason why I think it's going to be cost effective is because that's how hedge funds do it, right? Like when people in the finance world decide how do we spend 100 million dollars in order to solve the stock market they don't set up their own stock market inside that stock market and then give those people tools like they don't like that's what a prediction market setup would be like right we're like right. let's set up our own market of people who are going to be incentivized not to share information with each other in most cases like that typically isn't what hedge funds do what they do instead is they have very open um, infrastructure of people who have to collaborate a lot with each other of very different skill sets to come together and that you know, they give them incentives, they make sure that like they are very meritocratic. The good hedge funds, there are definitely a lot of shitty hedge funds out there. Yeah, and that seems to be like the best that we kind of know how to, you know, convert money and cash uh, Mm -hmm. into like very good basic, what are basically estimates of the output of that. So my guess is like we want similar infrastructure of highly skilled people with a diverse set of skill sets to be using like advanced technology going forward. I would treat it a bit like data scientists that um, data science techniques aren't recommended for the every man, right? Like they're just like data science is now established as existing field and there are people with expertise in the area. Similarly, I'd expect there to be people with a lot of expertise in this area. There's a a big question of how many of them we are going to have. If AI becomes a big part of it, maybe we're not going to need that many, right? Maybe it's like we only Mm -hmm. need 10 to 100 people in total to be basically overseeing large AI sets of estimates and like helping making sure that goes well. In another world, maybe we just have much more advanced tooling, and that's done by many people around the globe. Yeah, it's very hard to predict exactly how this is going to play out. I think that for EA, though, if we have maybe $100 million a year in order to encourage the kind of estimate that we want, maybe we spend a third of it on existing forca- like existing style forecasting open platforms, but we'd probably be spending a lot basically on salaries of some specialized people in order to like full-time do a good job in like hedge-like hedge fund like entities.
1: I don't quite know how to ask this, but I remember seeing some thread on Twitter that now I forget who it's from that was talking about this. Is, this is more what we were saying near the beginning of the episode, talking about EA as being a lot about epistemic deference. Yeah. And I think the person who was writing the thread was somewhat critical of this paradigm But I see you as being like, no, that's right. And I would double down and not that, you know, not that anybody has to or whatever, but that you do think that that's basically a good way for people to think about things and a much more reliable way to think about things than what typically happens. Is that that a fair way to characterize your position?
2: Very generally, yes. But of course, it is like a sophisticated nuanced discussion. This is a case where like justified trust matters a lot. So if you mm. place your trust in a knowledge authority who you shouldn't, who doesn't actually deserve it, then that is a bad thing, right? Like there are many cases where people, like there are definitely many cases in society where people defer epistemically to the wrong people, and mm. it would be better if they didn't do that. Like that's like very obviously true. Yeah. Um, in the EA case, there is a, some discussion about epistemic modesty, but some of that discussion is much more, can be more specifically fine-tuned by like what specific people do, pe- do people feel like should be trusted? I think generally the position, when it comes to prediction markets, there are some like more concrete questions we could get at. So one of them would be like, when should you trust the answers that prediction markets give versus mm-hmm. the answers that different intellectuals on Twitter or things give? Right. I think in the vast majority of cases, the prediction markets are better.
1: We, um, by the way, are a prediction market loving podcast. Yes. We supporters.
2: episodes. I'm, We're I'm,
0: looking for sponsorship, Kalshi, FYI.
2: <laughs> we both bet on prediction markets, at least some. For the sake of like, in forecasting utopia and estimation utopia i think it'd be great to have estimates of how good each forecasting question was like some forecasting questions just have very little time on them so it's pretty easy to outperform them and other ones i think require quite a bit of time and i think hypothetically in the future it should be easier to discern like which intellectuals are just bullshitters, right
1: yeah and and we were certainly talking about this a little bit before but i mean right now like what Do you have like what sort of an algorithm that you either use or would recommend? So for sure, I definitely agree with you that if there is some sort of question where there's a highly traded prediction market, I typically defer to the prediction market. And if for some reason I don't, then I'll usually bet. But there are a lot of questions where there's nothing like that currently. Right. And I can, I can hope that there will be in the future. And I, I do hope that there will be more of that in the future, but do you have thoughts on how to sort of, I don't know, practice epistemic humility or modesty in a skilled way when there aren't, there isn't necessarily like a prediction market or a mm. super forecaster with a strong track record who's weighing in?
2: So the first question there is like, how important is this question versus slightly similar questions? Mm-hmm. So what I'm excited about are ways that we could apply infrastructure to this type of problem. Right. So if I provide advice, and I'm like I don't have that much great advice that is easy to put into soundbites mm-hmm. about how to apply this. Like it could say, like, oh, these intellectuals seem better to me, but it's for these long reasons of like me tr- trying right, to track right. how accurate they are over time. And in general, like I think that a lot of people are overconfident. My expectation is that as more investigation is done, a lot of people would be overconfident. But I think this is very hard to explain. But it is easier to point to like what a good better world would look like. Mm-hmm. I have one post on less wrong about like imagining if intellectuals were judged and evaluated similar to professional sports players. So like imagine if each intellectual had like their own scorecard page with like a list of everything that they've said that has really done poorly over time. And like the the specific things that they do that like seem really shitty also like hypothetically evaluations of different committees, like investigating their work and saying like, a how interesting is it and b how like reasonable is it? There are a lot of people Mm -hmm. who have very interesting work, but you just shouldn't trust it that much. You should just like instead defer to forecasters where there's a disagreement Um, but there are definitely some people who are able to outperform the forecasting markets or you could generally trust when you know a lot of questions aren't on the forecasting markets so i think that if we had a more mature ecosystem we would have a lot of infrastructure in place to really add transparency and how reasonable these people are and i think that's like that would help a lot in these types of decisions Um, but Mm -hmm. of course that is like uh, you know they're going to push back against this a lot of people won't like this who have authority so it, is, it would be expensive to set up these types of things. It is also a case where, you know, this is adding transparency and arguably people would feel like they're, yeah, it's a trade-off. Intellectuals like being treated as people who, they don't want to be ranked. They don't, like most people don't like public information about all their positives and weaknesses, right? right. Especially like if you're an intellectual, one of the things you're amazing at typically is convincing people about your take. So if someone else is out there trying to say how good your take is, but you're really good already at convincing people of your take, then that's generally bad for you.
1: Yeah, the current crop of intellectuals, though I could, I don't know, when I imagine, when I'm optimistic about this sort of thing, I'm like, okay, but then if this sort of thing did become more common and people cared about it, then maybe the next round of intellectuals would be less about convincing people of their takes Mm -hmm. and more about having better takes.
2: Yeah, I I think basically... The truth comes out. Like right now, it's kind of expensive to gain information about how correct um, intellectuals are, but it is better than it could be, right? Like people do get some information about how good intellectuals are and intellectuals Mm -hmm. are kind of correspondingly incentivized to be somewhat accurate or at least not like super obviously incorrect, but we could do a better and better job. And as we do, I'd expect that intellectuals would be better incentivized and also like the intellectuals that people start listening to would be like just different people, right? So I think that like, if we're okay being pretty transparent and spending resources on this type of thing, we could definitely imagine worlds that would be like, we would have much better epistemic norms. That said, of course, keep in mind there are different interest groups where all of their intellectuals are doing kind of sketchy things. So really we'll not, like those groups may not enjoy things that make this type of thing more transparent, right? So I'd expect there to be pushback in any of these cases, but there's definitely like a there, 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 there are ways that we could like try to imagine of like much more epistemically mature civilizations. I think like the first step is imagining it sometime. You try to like scope it out, say like, what would better look like? Like what's the rate of change? How expensive are different procedures? And then the later steps are like trying to implement things that seem like good bets.
0: I, I again, really liked epistemically mature (laughs) civilizations as something to kind of shoot for that. Like almost all of your work is building up towards in a certain way. I agree there. Thank you, Ozzy, for coming on. I've always enjoyed talking with you, and this really feels like it gives me a much better, clear understanding of how you think about the world in your work.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you also. And thank you for the work you're doing on Better Tools for Thought and helping us achieve epistemic maturity as a civilization. (laughs) And is there anywhere, if people want to follow you, that they should find you?
2: Yeah, so we go to quantifieduncertainty.org for our website. Over there, there's a newsletter on Substack, the Query Medley, also on Twitter, but those are the main things. Cool. Thank you so much.